Welcome back to the History 101 podcast. I'm your substitute teacher, Mr. Woods, and today we'll be going in-depth on the first ascent of Mount Everest. So get out your ice picks, and let's climb into the skies. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the History 101 podcast. Make sure to take your seats, take your seats. Class is in session. This is episode five, the first ascent of Mount Everest. It's my birthday, people, 16th of June. Give me some shout outs. Just got back from dinner. But we're putting down a podcast for you guys. So a couple housekeeping items before we get into it. Been receiving some praise that my podcast is getting better. And as we go along, as we make more episodes, things are looking more and more polished. Just to address a few issues, I know that I'm releasing a lot of episodes quickly, um, but I'm just trying to get 10 episodes out before we hit up a regular schedule because I want to establish a good library. Um, As for the audio, I am recording on my Apple headphones, which... I understand that the microphone might not be of the highest quality, but hey, if a generous benefactor out there wants to support the podcast and shoot me a little podcast quality mic or recording studio quality microphone, I'm happy to have it. So, but we're working on striking that perfect balance of swearing still. I understand that we do have some older listeners, um, my grandmother's friends, for example, But again, this is not a dissertation or a public library lecture, nor is it a TED Talk. I'm just trying to unload some knowledge on you, the listener. Um, There's this Einstein quote that says something along the lines of, why memorize something when you can just look it up? Because the brain only has a finite amount of space. Well, Let me tell you, I'm definitely at max capacity with some random bullshit, so I got to pass it on to the masses. Forgive me if it comes out a little muddy, okay? I do do research for these episodes, but I don't really look at any notes when I record, so forgive me if I pepper in some swears to glue these ideas together. It's just kind of the way it's coming out. The... Last thing I want to get to, or maybe the second to last thing, is the idea of the substitute teacher review, or maybe principal or administrator sitting in on my class. So I understand that I get a little loose, play it a little far from the vest sometimes, Um, but I did have this idea of doing some more serious topics, maybe more war-oriented or tragedy-oriented um, just less happy, happy topics in general. Cause I do know a lot about some super sad events, but I'll make sure to put a disclaimer if I do do episodes like that, because I know there are some easily bored types out there who are not interested in something that might not be as entertaining and might be a little more history oriented. I did do my history thesis, my undergraduate honors thesis on the propaganda of Nazi uniforms If you want to learn about that, let me know, reach out to me. I will do a special episode on that, 
but just going to forewarn you that it will be long and boring or long and boring to some people. So if you would like to read it, let me know. I still have the PDF, of course. If you just want to hear a podcast about it and don't want to read 40 pages of my rantings and ravings in 12-point Times New Roman, then I'll do a podcast on it for you guys. Lastly, still no sponsors, and I'm not saying that I want them, but please keep sharing the pod because I feel like all of you are my sponsors supporting this. Summer school's in session, people. Mr. Woods is trying to go full-time, so he's got to get some support. And I think those administrative episodes will help. So let me know if you want to hear that. As always, almost five and a half minutes into the pod, and we're getting into today's topic. The first ascent of Mount Everest. So a little background on the mountain itself to help set the stage here. Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world at least above sea level, because there's some undersea volcanoes. I believe Mauna Kea in Hawaii is the tallest mountain if you measure base to tip. But let's be real. No one's fucking counting that shit because it's a fucking volcano and it's underwater. We're talking above ground, baby. Let's go. Mount Everest. Official elevation is 8,848 meters or 29,029 feet. Quick side note here, people. I'm doing a lot of my research in France, so a lot of my sources, if I do find something nuanced, it's usually in metric, so I am translating here. Let me know if you just want to stick to feet. I'm going to stick to feet for the rest of this episode. Stick to that that sweet American glory. Um, So let me know if you like it. If you do prefer the metric system, let me know. If you want both, happy to do both. Not a problem. But anyway... 29,029 feet official elevation of Mount Everest. So to put that in perspective for you, when you take your little trips to Florida or wherever you go on spring break, maybe Mexico, that's about as high as your plane's cruising altitude is. So we're talking high AF. Mount Everest is part of the Himalaya mountain range, which runs between Afghanistan in the west and almost to Myanmar, formerly Burma, in the east. So this crosses the Tibetan Plateau, which runs above India and below China on the border there. And the peak of Everest itself actually sits right on the Nepal-China border. So the country of Nepal, who has that sweet flag that with the two little triangles, pretty unique, and China. The fun fact here is that the Himalayas include over 50 mountains exceeding 24,000 feet, which makes this the absolute most beast mountain range in the world by far. I believe the Andes tallest mountain is something like, sorry, I have to use metric one more time. It's like 6,000 meters or something. It's something with an A, if I remember correctly. And the Andes, as we all know, is a huge mountain range and they don't even touch um, the height of some of the Himalayas, which doesn't even touch the Himalayas, which have 50 mountains over 7,000 meters or 24,000 feet. The, for reference, the highest mountain in Europe is Mount Elbrus in Russia, which sits at 18,510 feet. And the highest mountain in North America, also the United States, is Denali, formerly called Mount McKinley, which sits at, six, at 20,310 feet. 
and that's in the, the U.S. state of Alaska. So nothing in Canada beating us, baby. Nothing in Mexico either. Um, also, if you if you don't consider Russia, Europe, because I know there is, you know, whatever there. Um, Mont Blanc, which is in France. I've actually seen it. You can see it from Lyon on a clear day. If, if you listen to our Tour de France episode, you know Lyon. Um, and I don't know how high that is, but it's in the 5,000, maybe 4,000 meter range. I'm sorry. I don't know what, what that is in feet. Mount Everest is one of the seven summits, which are the seven highest mountains on each of the seven continents. I'm not going to list all of them here, but you know Everest is the king. So simple as that, tallest mountain in the world, and barely anything comes close. Again, Mount McKinley in Alaska, 20,000 feet, and Everest is almost 10,000 feet taller than that. So craziness. So why is Mount Everest called Mount Everest? Well, this is just the anglicized name. As I mentioned, this is an Asian mountain. The original Tibetan name is Komolongma. I'm so sorry for butchering that, but that means Holy Mother. It's also called Diodunga by locals, um, which means Holy Mountain. So two boss names there, and you can see that the mountain inspires some religious sentiments among the local peoples. Um, and I, I believe those religions there range from Hinduism to Buddhism and things of that nature. In 1856, Andrew Wach, the British Surveyor General of India, who was working on behalf of the Royal Geograph Geographical Society, remember India was a British colony at the time, he suggested naming the mountain Everest in honor of Sir George Everest, the previous surveyor general of India. The Brits were really interested in keeping one of those local names for the mountain, but there were so many, and there's so many varied languages in, those, in that part of the world that the mountain's uh, title couldn't, they couldn't just find one. So they decided that they would, could not favor one over the other and chose Everest. Interestingly, George Everest was not pumped about this because Everest could not be written in Hindi, which was the local language of the, of the surrounding areas, nor could it be easily pronounced by the locals. Anyway, nevertheless, the Royal Geographical Society gets their name, gets their way, and they adopt the official name Mount Everest in 1865. So been a minute with that name. Now, this remains today just the English name with the Nepalese government. So that's the government of Nepal referring to the mountain as Sagaramatha or goddess of the sky. God, I must sound so American mispronouncing that. I am so sorry on those pronunciations, people. I'm not even going to pretend like I speak a word of any Asian language. I know maybe Nihao in Chinese and Arigato in Japanese, but Konnichiwa also. But that's, that's the extent. So flashing back to 1856 and Andrew Wall, remember he is the British Surveyor General of India, working on behalf of the Royal Geographical Society, states that based on the great trigonomic survey, which measured the Indian subcontinent using trigonometry, says that he, he decides based on this information that Everest was about 
29,002 feet. So the dude was not far off, 27 feet off today's original or official height. So massive shout out to trigonometry for being so correct. But bada bing, bada boom, we've got a semi-official height and, or at least it was official at the time. So now we just got to climb old Evie. In 1855, Clinton Thomas Dent, strong name, by the way, who is president of the Alpine Club, the world's first mountaineering club, which was based in London, suggested that climbing Everest was possible in a book he wrote in 1885. And this is a sweet idea, but no idea why he thought this was possible. Anyway, the seeds are planted for people to start thinking about summiting. So flash forward to 1921, and the Brits, who still, India is still a um, colonial power or a colonial, uh, dominion, the, they set up a reconnaissance mission to investi- investigate if climbing Everest is even possible. And this mission is led by George Mallory, who kind of lays out an exploratory climb up Everest to see, you know, how far they can make it up, maybe find some routes. He makes it up 22,980 feet, which is about a mile short of the summit. And he sees a way he could possibly get to the summit. So unfortunately, Mallory didn't have the right gear or supplies to keep going. So he had to bail. But he did become the first European to set foot on Everest's flanks. So claps in the chat for Mallory for that one. Legend goes that reporters asked Mallory, why do you want to climb Mount Everest upon his return? And he famously retorted, because it's there. Chills. Such chills. Now, we're not sure if this is true, but come on. I mean, there is a lesson there. This guy did not have to climb this mountain, but he saw it. He was curious, and he just wanted to do it. He wanted to prove not only to the world, but to himself, that he could get up this mountain, that it was possible. That man could conquer nature. And huge respect for that. So we're going to carry that lesson with us. One year later, the Brits return and George Finch, an Australian on this expedition in 1922, climbs 27,300 feet up using oxygen to aid his climb. So Finch was obviously more successful, but Van Mallory doesn't quite make it to the top, but was still less than 2,000 feet from the summit on this expedition, which is very impressive. Already 1922, they're getting close. George Mallory was also on this 1922 exploratory mission, but he gets caught in an avalanche. He survives, but seven local Sherpas, who are the locals from Nepal and Tibet carrying gear, They were killed in this avalanche, which just shows you how dangerous Everest could be, not just because of the height or lack of oxygen, but the unpredictability of weather and just the conditions in general. I mean, an avalanche, you just cannot predict it sometimes. And um, nature uh, is kind of proving me wrong on the fact that man could conquer it there. But alas, story's not over yet. Flash forward to another British expedition in 1924. So... To the best of my knowledge, 23 was a little rest here for the boys. 
And George Mallory is still determined to get to the top of Everest. It's still there, people. George Mallory needs that. So on the 1st of June, Mallory sets off to try to summit Everest. However, the weather turned pretty bad and local aid started to turn back. Remember, these Sherpas know this mountain like the back of their hand or at least the, the base. Um, so they, they just pieced out and Mallory couldn't keep going without them. So he had to descend to wait for better weather. The next day, Edward Norton, who was another Brit on the expedition, he caught some favorable conditions and made it to within 1000 feet of the summit, but he had to turn back. So to this point, he's, he made it up farther than George Finch. Remember who made it 27,000 feet up. This guy makes it 28,000 feet. Edward Norton makes it 28,000 feet up, so he's getting close. And George is probably sweating at this point. He's like, this dude's going to steal my thunder? Not on my watch. 8th of June comes. 1924, remember, George Mallory sets off for attempt number two. Not going to be outdone by old Eddie Norton. He was never seen alive again. It is still unknown whether Mallory died before or after having reached the summit. His body would not be found until 1999. And when his body was recovered, it was just 800 feet from the summit. So posthumous elitism there, posthumous, a really nice boss move that he did beat out Eddie Norton. But again, this is just showing you that this mountain is not to be messed with. Anything can happen and people die. So rest in peace, George Mallory, an influential pioneer in climbing Everest. But unfortunately, she is still not summited. So after the, over the course of the next 30 years, the interest kind of wanes in terms of uh, summiting Everest. Things get a little fucky in the 1930s and 40s due to a certain world war. There's Indian independence. The Brits are ousted from the Indian subcontinent. So things are changing, especially politically. The world is not focused on summiting Mount Everest. There were more attempts, including the Houston Everest flight of 1933, which brought two aircraft over the summit. And this was a cool stunt. And a lot of pictures were actually taken that day during the flights, which would eventually aid in the first ascent of Everest. Um, but again, those are, those are planes. Those aren't peeps. So, Mr. Woods, can you please get to the fucking story? Settle down, class. I'm on it. In 1951, the Brits send a reconnaissance mission to check out Everest and try to scout out some routes. They end up finding only one possible way up. Side note, again, this is after World War II. So while Tibet had to close its borders, which was due to a Chinese invasion, which is a bit controversial, I'm not going to get to it. Nepal had opened up its borders. So climbers could ascend from the Nepal side of Mount Everest. But access to the mountain, the point is access to the mountain was finally possible again as it had been very politically different, difficult before. And in 1953, the Brits arrive in Kathmandu, and this time 
they're going for the summit. This is not a reconnaissance mission. They're going to use that info from 1951 and climb to the peak. So Kathmandu is the capital of Nepal. And again, Nepal is going to be where they're entering the, the base of Mount Everest from. So among the Brits was a New Zealander by the name of Edmund Hillary. And he had been a part of that 1951 reconnaissance mission. Hillary was teamed up with a Nepali Indian Sherpa by the name of Tenzing Norgay. And there were other teams set up to climb, but these two were by far the strongest. Norgay had attempted Everest six times, and Hillary had massive amounts of climbing experience, including being on that 1951 reconnaissance mission. So these were two, the cream of the crop. But the point is there were two other teams on that trip who would make, so they kind of had a three-pronged approach to make an assault on the summit. So one of the other climbing pairs gets to go first, two dudes named Tom and Charles. They set out for the summit first on 26th of May, 1953. Now remember, these guys are leaving from the last base camp when I say that they're setting out for the summit. And I believe that base camp is about at 26,000 feet. There's a base camp, from the best that I can tell, every 1,000 to 2,000 feet up the mountain. So they can stop, kind of chill, maybe change their clothes, go pee pee, get some food in them. Um, because it's impossible to summit a 29,000 foot mountain in one day, obviously. So Charles and Tom peace out of that base camp at about 26,000 feet and actually get within a football field's length of the final summit, so 300 feet from the old peak. However, Charles gets a problem with one of his oxygen tanks, the valve on it, and it ends up, and his breathing just becomes super labored. Him and Tom are unfortunately forced to turn back, so they're making it, they made it super close. Remember, as far as anyone can tell, this is the closest any man has ever made it up Mount Everest. Quick little note to remember that Everest being 29,000 feet above sea level, which is almost five and a half miles, is that means it's in, incredibly hard to breathe normal oxygen up there or normal air. So most climbers have to bring oxygen with them because climbing is hard AF. I mean, you're straining yourself all the time and the air is so thin, any movement demands massive amounts of oxygen and there's just not enough to, to fuel you, so you need that that oxygen, that extra oxygen with you. So that valve bust meant 100% that Tom and Chuck had to turn back, as it would have likely meant death to keep going, um, to keep straining yourself for, towards the summit at 29,000 feet. Uh, side note, little story time. I know this dude who went to Colorado Springs for a uh, at the Olympic Training Center for a swim camp, and the day he got there, he was just ripping a couple of easy laps and he, his lung collapsed. So for reference, Colorado Springs is 6,000 feet above sea level. Everest Summit is almost five times that. So ripping a couple laps, collapsed lung. Trying to get to the top of Mount Everest without oxygen and not planning it at least, not, not a good move. So... 27th of May, next, which is the next day, the second team, our boys Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, make their assault on the summit. 
side note, so elite that they called it an assault. This is their words, not mine. And absolute lads, these two, just assaulting the summit. They pieced out of base camp at 6.30 in the morning, remember 27th of May, and by 9 a.m., they were 100 meters from the summit. So call it 100 yards from the summit, 300 feet. It actually would ha- would take two and a half more hours to go uh, that 100 meters, but at 11.30 a.m., they reached the summit of Everest, and Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay post up for 10 minutes, taking photos on the summit, bury across from the snow, and voila, you've got the first two men on the summit of Mount Everest. So the news correspondent at base camp sets, uh, sends a message with a runner, and this runner runs to a nearby village where they telegram the British embassy in Kathmandu. This message finally makes it to London to be published to the public on the 2nd of June, 1953, which is actually the day Queen Elizabeth uh, II was coronated, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, So fun fact there. But it's also been said that because this message was sent with a runner and it was huge news, that the summiting of Mount Everest was the last major news item to be delivered to the world using a runner. So literally a courier on foot, just like, (sighs) towards the fucking mail office and like sending that message. So chapeau to that dude. For their efforts, Edmund Hillary was made a knight and making him Sir Edmund Hillary. And Tenzing Norgay was awarded the George Medal. Um, Tenzing Norgay was was from India. And while other Indians had been knighted, it, it was seen as a little bit of shade to not be knighted and only get the George Medal, but definitely a big sign of respect. And he equally uh, played a role in the summiting of, of um, Mount Everest. So huge shout out to both those guys. The film and photographs taken on the expedition produced a film titled The Conquest of Everest, which was released later on in that year, 1953. Some of this documentary actually shows the reaction of the other climbing teams. The cameraman filmed their faces when they like when they heard about it and they heard that the summit was successful, which is such a dick move in my opinion. Like, dude, I guess for the showbiz, but come on, I mean, kind of a big deal. So since the first ascent of Everest in 1953, there have been many subsequent expeditions to summit Mount Everest. On the 22nd of May, 1963, the first American, Jim Whitaker, reaches the summit. On the 16th of May, 1975, Japanese Junko Tabai becomes the first woman on the summit. On the 8th of May, 1978, Reinhold Messner of Italy and Peter Habler of Austria became the first two climbers to reach the summit of Everest without supplementary oxygen, which is just an absolute feat. Big, big shout out to those lads. On the 29th of September, 1988, the first American woman reaches the top of Everest. And that same year, 1988, Jean-Marc Beauvoir of France paraglides off the summit of Everest. 
and he just pieces down the side. So Daredevil stuff and those Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary clearly paved the way for a lot of stuff. In 1999, as I mentioned earlier, George Mallory's body was discovered at 26,760 feet. So the body was well-preserved due to the below-freezing temperatures at that height, but the mystery still remains whether or not Mallory successfully summited Everest that day in 1924, as his camera and equipment did not indicate, the film was never found on the camera, and nothing indicated that he had made it up, so it's impossible to tell. What is also impossible is to talk about Mount Everest without addressing the massive danger factor associated with climbing a mountain of that height. In 1996, eight people died when caught in a blizzard that arrived just after they had reached the summit. So they had made it up and it arrived after. This was made into a movie with Jake Gyllenhaal and a a bunch of other famous actors. I believe it came out in 2015 or maybe 2014, and it, it's a very good movie. It's, it's a harrowing story and really a, a tragedy. In 2014, an avalanche killed 16 people, and in 2015, which is as far as I can tell the deadliest year Everest has ever had, avalanches caused by the April 2015 Nepal earthquake killed 22 people. So nature is uh, not a, is metal, for sure. So... Altitudes higher than 8,000 meters, 26,000 feet, have been referred to as the death zone by climbers. Temperatures at this height have get very, very low, causing frostbite on any skin exposed to the air for just seconds or minutes. These low temps also create ice, which makes slipping and falling a super high risk, and it is believed that Slipping and falling is the greatest cause of death in this death zone to climbers. In addition to the cold, high winds are a big factor up there. And even the heaviest of climbers can be threatened by just the smallest of gusts, especially on small um, rocks and, and small ledges where you're trying to get to a small peak on top of a mountain. A 2008 study concluded that a majority of deaths on Everest do occur in this death zone. So it is by far the deadliest area on any mountain, but Everest, uh, certainly. So the state of climbing today is very different from 1924, 1953, and even 20 years ago, 1999, or even 2000. Guided expeditions now exist for commercial purposes, to the best of my knowledge, since 1985, and have only become more popular these can cost anywhere from thirty-five to two hundred thousand USD. I mean, dude, just like buy a car or something. These prices include everything: so tents, food, ropes, and the Sherpas. And the Sherpas are a big deal on this because they do carry a lot of the gear. They know the mountain. They know the routes. So a lot of other peaks that haven't been commercialized, like Denali, remember formerly Mount McKinley, this requires carrying all your gear, which can mean a pack of anywhere from 60 to 100 pounds, and a lot of times a sled too, to, because you, you just need so much, your, the calorie expenditure is so high, you just need so many supplies to make it to the top. In Everest, this isn't a problem at all. You 
your your boots are almost laced for you your tents are set up for you everything your every need is catered to all you need to do is just move so the commercialization of everest has been highly criticized especially by the son of tenzing norgay remember he's the uh one of the first guys to summit he said in in 2003 that his father would be shocked to see rich thrill seekers climbing the mountain he said that while you do still have to climb the mountain, so not taking away from that, the spirit of adventure is what's gone. And it's just selfish and endangers the lives of others because you're just paying money to, to check off a bucket list thing rather than doing it for the real spirit of adventure. On the flip side of this, however, it has been argued that Western tourism dollars have greatly improved the lives of Sherpas and people who live around Mount Everest. Um, but in my opinion, it just is not worth the pollution and the massive strain that it puts on the environment when all these people are discarding air canisters, food, things of that nature on the flanks of Everest. And again, the spirit of adventure is so important. You can go anywhere in the world and have an amazing experience for if you just pay the money, but it really takes kind of that creativity and passion for what it is at its base to really enjoy what something is all about. So a good example of this is like in France, you can have a beautiful vacation in Paris and stay in a five-star hotel and eat the best food and you will live a great French experience. But in my opinion, it's in those nooks and crannies, those petite villages in the south of France, in central France, in western France, where you can find some of the realest French people doing the most French things and observe the way of life as it really is in France. So that's my two cents on it. So wrapping up here, Hope you guys enjoyed this potty. It was a quick one, but trying to keep it at 35 minutes. I've had a fascination with Everest since I was a kid. I remember I used to climb up this barn in our backyard, would throw some ropes on it, pretend like I was scaling Mount Everest without oxygen like Hillary and Norgay in 1953. So as always, a quote to bring us out from Sir Edmund Hillary himself. He was actually just Edmund Hillary at the time. This was before he summited Everest. He said, I will come again and conquer you because as a mountain, you cannot grow, but as a human, I can. Chills. Thanks for listening, guys. And as always, chat soon.